For millennia, humans have been transfixed by silk. It's uh, been prized, of course, for its beauty, but there's so much more to this wondrous natural product. Over a hundred years ago, for example, the first bulletproof vest was made from silk. And today, scientists are, are looking to use silk in everything from medicine to robotics. Now, and forgive the pun, biologist and science writer R.T. Prasad has woven together the story, no, the stories of this unique substance in her book, Silk, A History in Three Metamorphoses. And R.T., welcome to the program. Where did your own fascination with silk begin? I think I was about 10 years old. I was in a small, beautiful village in the south of India. And I looked into a house and there was a family, I think, working on a hand loom. That's a wooden frame across which you string uh, um, threads. And they were weaving it. And there were two children there who were about my age. And the material was the most beautiful silk. And it was being interwoven with threads of gold. It was the kind of thing my mother and my aunts wore all the time in India. But I had never really thought about where it came from until much, much later. We tend to associate silk with uh, the silkworm and consequently China, but in fact it has a much bigger history, doesn't it? The silk that I saw when I was 10 and the silk that most people wear, so if you go to a shop today and bought um, a silk shirt or pyjamas, that would be the silk um, of the Chinese worm called Bombyx mori. And that that uh, silkworm didn't exist before about 4,000 years ago because it was bred, domesticated by farmers um, in China. And it was bred so that it had very special properties. And also the, the silk moths, they can't really fly to any extent. You know, they're easy for humans to keep and to produce the thread with. They're completely dependent on people even for um, being mated. But this moth obviously came from a wild ancestor. And so there are wild moths spread across the world. It's just that people hadn't really looked for it. There was an archaeologist called Irene Good, who was a textile expert at Harvard, and she said, uh, when you find thread in China, you check if it's silk. But if you found it in India or Madagascar or Mexico or Australia or anywhere else, you just wouldn't do it. And she did that and found that there were moths all over the world. Um, and it's something we've known since about the 19th century, um, in European science, but obviously indigenous peoples always knew that they were animals that they used for silk. I knew vaguely that uh, spiders produced silk, but I had no idea about the uh, Mediterranean mollusks, which we uh, must talk about later. But simply stated, there's no one silk and consequently no one silk road. No, there has been silk um, all over the world. It's It was a global endeavour um, separately. But I think that wherever people saw natural products that they could use, they would use it. So it's not a particular surprise, but it's just something we never really think about. And these silks have different properties, so they have different strengths, and that gives them very interesting properties for future technological applications. But even talking about spiders, spiders themselves have several silks. In one spider, they make several silks from different glands for different purposes, like wrapping their eggs or making their webs or dropping down on them. They have to have different strengths and elastic properties. 
What we see, going back to Neolithic farmers in China, is basically a form of genetic engineering. It is genetic engineering, just like we have pugs and Pomeranians today um, that came from a a wild ancestor that looked nothing like it. The wild um, moth flew very fast. It was beautifully camouflaged um, and it it produced actually very fine silk um, and it was bred. Um, selectively bred. So you, to, to domesticate something, you choose the um, animals which or the plants which have the properties that you want. Sheep, for example, we've bred them to have more wool rather than rough hair. Um, so this was the, the type of natural genetic engineering that, that farmers did over long, long periods of time. Just as many bees are sacrificed in the production of honey, the extraction of silk comes at a cost because uh, the insect has to die in the process. The a Chinese silkworm, well, the, the silkworm is um, an insect that undergoes metamorphosis. That means it starts life as it looks like a caterpillar and it ends up as an animal with wings, an insect with wings. And that in that metamorphosis, at some stage, it stops and it wraps itself in a cocoon that comes out of its um, sort of tubes and its body as a liquid. And when it hits the air, it comes through salivary glands and becomes a, a thread and it wraps itself in a cocoon that's about, I don't know, um, four or five centimetres contains two to three kilometers of silk. Two um, to three kilometers it, in from yes. one that is one extraordinary, cocoon. isn't it? But in order to get a continuous thread, you can't allow the insect to break it and come out because they vomit a, an enzyme that dissolves the silk in order to escape. And so they they the domesticated silk moth has routinely been well, the silk uh, cocoon. They've been stifled or boiled, not very nice. But there are other ways of um, extracting the silk, which allows the moth to escape. And that's done. that can be done with Bombix Mori. What you get is um, threads that have little knots in them. And so you get a bit of a texture. You don't get that smooth, seamless kind of um, fabric that, that we're used to seeing. But, you know, it's about what we consider beauty. I think, you know, that whole um, arts and crafts um, idea of what is manufacturing, do things have to be perfectly machine made or can there be beauty in, in the what, you know, what you could call imperfect? Most of the other moths are either completely wild or semi-domesticated, so they're not killed. But, you know, there was an, arch- um, an architect, um, an, uh, an engineer called Neri Oxman, Professor Neri Oxman at um, MIT Media Lab, and she did something different. She built these architectural structures, frames, and she put silk caterpillar, um, the silkworms on them and asked them to build the thing for her, and they did. And this was a sustainable architectural uh, piece of uh, a building that was built without having to kill any any um, insects at all. Our team listeners would assume that uh, they have to eat mulberry leaves, but is that the case? Um, so white mulberry leaves are the food that they eat. So, you know, this is ecology. It's thinking about an animal in its surroundings and the plants that it, it, it depends upon and the natural plant that the ancestor of the Bombix mori ate and Bombix mori eats is uh, white mulberry. It can eat other things. I know, you know, lots of kids keep silkworms at home. I kept them at home to see what they were doing. And my friends told me, oh, when I was little, I gave it lettuce and it turned green. The silk turned green. <laughs> um, you can feed it anything, but the quality of the silk will be the best when it's fed with white mulberry. 
I did that as a child as well, and I'm much older <laughs> than you. Okay. Now, <laughs> what evidence do we have that uh, silk was not an exclusively Chinese invention, Arti? So Irene Good, Dr. Irene Good, this um, archaeologist, um, had some collections from India at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And these were bracelets and inside of them were threads. And as I said, she noted that nobody ever looks to see if silk was used in other places. And so she, she took a look and she checked um, the diameter and the um, sort of composition and shape of the threads because it's very unique. The shape of silks from different organisms from the spider, from the wild silk moth, from the domesticated silk moth, from the pinnonobilis, are all quite distinct to look at under a, a strong microscope. And she matched it to the <laughs> orifices of the wild moths from this uh, region of, of what is now, um, in, well, India, because the um, bracelets were found in what is now Pakistan, and found that they were wild silk moths that... Um, were were used in jewellery and fabrics at that time. And that time was of a parallel time as the silk was being made in China. So we're looking at roughly the same times that in the ancient world, people in different parts of the world were using silk. They didn't, as far as we know, domesticate the ancestor of the Chinese silk moth, but they did have it. So maybe it was a idea they had to not domesticate we, we will never know but i know later on people who were buddhist or hindu did not want to um want to kill the, the worms in the process rt another incredible type of silk and i knew absolutely nothing about this can be found at the bottom of the mediterranean tell us about that this is the most wonderful organism, and unfortunately it's uh, critically endangered because of the rising water temperatures and the pollution in the Mediterranean Sea. But basically, um, across the ancient Mediterranean, and that's from North Africa, around the coast of Lebanon, in Greece, in Malta, in Sicily, um, in Sardinia, where I visited two women who still weave this silk, there is a mollusk. So it's like the mussels that you'd eat normally, the blue mussels. And if you ever notice, the blue mussels have a little thread at the end with they, which they adhere, these, um, they adhere to surfaces. But these are like those mussels, except they grow up to one meter tall. And so the, the length of the threads that come out of them are, are like, you know, if someone had a bob haircut, they're that long. And they anchor the, the animal into the into the, this, the seabed. And these threads are, um, are blow molded out of the foot of the animal. And they have this incredible property, which is being looked at in technology, which is they can self-heal and self-repair. But for um, probably millennia, these uh, shellfish, they have a lot of meat in them. It tastes very bad. The Romans said that it was a diuretic, so it's not very nice, but um, it's cheap. And uh, they would fish for these animals, and then the threads that came from their feet would be woven into into fabrics. The silk from the Pinnanobilis is a beautiful gold green copper color that changes under different lights. To the human eye, uh, sea silk washed and combed can uh, barely be distinguished from other silks. Yes, it's very, very fine. It's also more fragile, um, but I have seen fabrics made of it. There have been um, 
shawls, for example, altar cloths in Sardinia, many large pieces of fabric made from it that look very much like silk, yes. So you make the point that uh, they look rather like uh, locks of human hair, auburn hair, but they're three times finer than human hair. They're three times finer and they um, it's very interesting because the, the fact that they're so fine has meant that we many specimens haven't survived. So there's always this debate about did people actually weave them into silks or not, but uh, um, the first real example was found in um, a museum in Hungary, which was a Roman, I think the northernmost outpost of the Romans in Aquincum, and there was a woman who was mummified in the Egyptian style and her dress was made of um, sea silk. So up until the Mussolini era, there were still a number of women in Italy who were skilled with uh, this material. Yes, um, women, um, uh, it, was, it was very common to make it, um, but it was very expensive because of the fineness of it. It, it's, it, is, it takes a lot of skill in order to work um, these threads. When Mussolini came, he co-opted uh, a lot of the um, textile uh, factories to make uh, fabric for the soldiers' materials instead. Um, and so that skill started dying out. Now they're endangered, so you can't, cannot actually collect it, but there are many bags and bags of these threads remaining from the um, 1920s or 30s. And, you know, it's not the only... Um, muscle that makes threads like this. There are others across the world, including in Southeast Asia um, and East Asia, that make something very similar that modern weavers are using. Um, obviously, again, like the silkworms, you have to take the thing, the animal, out of the sea, and therefore you do kill them. But if they're being fished for their meat anyway, then it's it's good not to waste it, I suppose. This is LNL and we're talking to R.T. Prasad. Her new book is uh, Silk, A History in Three Metamorphoses. And uh, let's go back to the spiders you were talking about previously. Do all spiders produce silk? Yes, all spiders produce silk. Um, there, are, there are sort of spiders that are more similar to ancestral species and they make um, sort of trap doors from silk, you know, doors in the ground that open up and they use silk to hinge it. Um, but the spiders we're more used to seeing, they make several different types of silk. And their silk, it has been the holy grail in terms of um, the silk that people have wanted to use for a long time, it's five times tougher than steel. Scientists often say that if a spider was the size of a human, the web that they make would be strong enough to stop a jetliner in its flight path. And so the problem with spiders, though, is they don't like being domesticated. They're not very cooperative. A few years ago, a designer um, in Madagascar, he's um, British, he's married to a Madagascan uh, woman, he lives there, um, made a cape, a beautiful cape of the golden orb spider that you also have in Australia. The threads are naturally um, a stunning shade of gold. Um, but it took him eight years and around two million spiders to make that because he said at first the Malagasy women would go and collect, get a basket and put spiders in them. 
But they, when they got home, they'd just be very, one very happy-looking spider at the bottom of the basket, <laughs> because of course they're cannibalistic. So over over the years, it's been so the hardest thing was was to get enough of this amazing silk, and people have been trying it for for hundreds of years at least. There's other ways of using it in the Pacific um, Islands. People use the webs themselves to mat them together to create masks and uh, articles of clothing. But if you want to extract the the, the threads, there have been horrible machines made, made over the centuries where you immobilize the spider and pull the thread from the abdomens. And it's, it's I think it's painful. <laughs> and then you let them go and they're very angry. And they go off and... Now, before, before we get into the future applications of silk, time, I think, to briefly discuss uh, the underwear of Mongols. Ah, uh, yes. So you talked about bulletproof um, silk armour in your introduction. Well, you know, that was sort of the 19th century when sort of uh, gun crime started um, exploding in, in the Wild West, especially there were doctors and scientists who were looking at silk because they noticed that when people were shot at, say, even if they were wearing a thick leather hat or a, sh a strong denim jacket, none of that stopped the bullet. But if they had a silk handkerchief in their pocket, um, the bullet could not could not um, penetrate through the body. Um, and so studies have been uh, done on that. But long before bullets, um, Genghis Khan's army were issued, standard issue, with very thin silk shirts. And the reason was for uh, missile arrows, because arrows... Um, it's, it, it's not nice to be shot by an arrow, but the thing that's horrible is when it's taken out of you. But what would happen is the arrow would go in, embed in the silk shirt. The silk shirt would twist around the arrow, making it very easy to remove. But also the advantage of silk in med medical and surgical um, applications is that it's a natural animal protein that can be made to not be rejected by the body's immune system. And so it will help the wound to heal itself. So you've told us about... Uh what happened in the Wild West when uh, Dr. George Emery Goodfellow uh, decided that he could create a sort of uh, body armour. But uh, silk was also used in a variety of surprising ways by the Nazis. Oh, the Nazis, you know, they, they thought they'd use the silkworm as a model of eugenics. So here were these um, animals. They were sent to schools to teach uh, the principles of eugenics because, you know, the weakest die. Um, but it was a terrible example because silkworms have been inbred, i.e. what we call racial purity, <laughs> for thousands of years, which meant they were very sick animals. Um, you know, if, if you outbreed, you tend to get uh, stronger. But the reason they planted mulberry trees and sent them to schools and teachers were making silk, um, everyone was making silk, was for parachutes. And the way they wove these parachutes together, again, and one of the extraordinary properties of silk, depending on how you uh, utilize it, is that these parachutes they made were fire retardant. Um, and so there were um, bombings where, you know, people or um, attacks where people would look up in the sky and see hundreds of these parachutes falling down. It was not allowed for anyone to pick these parachutes up from the ground, but women did. And after the war was over in Europe, um, they were they were repurposed into wedding dresses and scarves <laughs> and handkerchiefs. <laughs> Talking to R.T. Prasad, now, there were also other uses for silk in the war. I learned from you it was used to uh, fulfil the need for crosshairs on, on bomb sites, for example. Yes, so in um, in guns, but also in telescopes, also in medical equipment, these uh, um, spider silk particularly uh, is wonderful for crosshairs to... Um, 
to be able to to focus and look into the um, the eyepiece. Uh, Bombix Mori, it's um, a little bit thicker, and so it it does um, get in the way of the sight. But spider silk's wonderful, and so there was a lady in the, in the states called Nam Songa, and she started silking or milking these uh, black widow spiders very successfully. Um, it was so precious at the time for military equipment that um, you know the, the the military men who came to collect the silk from her handcuffed the briefcase of silk to them to themselves and <laughs> transport it. Um, and after the war, she she continued making them for other med- you know, medical and other applications. I shall never think about a redback or a tarantula or a, a funnel web in the same way. Now, what are some of the future applications for silk being explored, RT? Well, I have to say one of the one of the real challenges, as I mentioned about spider silk, which is the, you know, the holy grail of silks, um, is uh, is how to get enough of it. And what I also would say is some of the wild silk threads are actually approaching the strength of, of, of spider silk because unlike the Bombyx mori, which developed with humans, these ones still had to fight their environment and adapt to um, um, environmental challenges and infections, and so they, they're a bit stronger. But in terms of spider silk, the first challenge is making enough of it, and so scientists have done some very interesting things. There's um, Professor Randy Lewis in America who genetically modified bacteria and yeast to ask them to produce spider silk and then he actually also made uh, an animal a mammal that was uh, popularly known as the spider goat and this was a goat that contained the dna of uh, spiders (laughs) so that when it was milked the spider silk protein would come out in the milk of course it's not a perfect spider silk because uh, it's a short version spiders when they produce the silk it's a very complex silk but it's also about the way they fold the protein in a very particular style and that gives it and the enormous strength that it has um but having said that the the applications i think really i got interested in the medical applications um of silk but really you know we're at, we're living at a time as as um, the scientists i interviewed told me you know we are very good at making plastics, right? So we're very good at making materials. We have the know-how to do that, but we have to get away from the hydrocarbons. And silk is an excellent alternative because it it brings biology and technology together, and it um, it's completely biodegradable. It also, um, even with the bombyx mori, even though you people have normally kill it, but you don't have to. It it's mulberry leaves, so. It, locks carbon into that part of the cycle in the trees and then the, the carbon's locked into the silk that's produced so they're thinking about it for alternatives to plastic cups and bags for example but also electronics um they uh, have been making human um, human electronic interfaces from silk uh tiny needles that don't irritate the skin for example uh, biodegradable implantable electronics that can record brain signals also edible um, sensors that can go on food to try and prevent food waste and report back. Um, if my mum forgets to take her medication, there could be a silk sensor that she swallows with the medicine to report back and tell, tell us through an app if she does. But also um, for the last over a decade, it's been used to stem- temperature stabilize medicine. So you, we know with the, the COVID vaccine, for example, it's one of the challenges is how to keep them stable, especially in countries where it's very hot and we know the world's getting um, hotter. Um, also penicillin, chemotherapy drugs have been stabilized at the Mayo Clinic using silk for over a decade. 
And in terms of surgery, I Genghis Khan did because it's a natural protein. It's already been used for um, the rebuilding of uh, vocal cords for people with vocal cord um, paralysis. But you can also create dissolvable nuts and gears and bolts and body parts um, that are used instead of metal implants, for example. So it's really quite remarkable. RT, I've been uh, doing this program before you, I began doing it, before you were born, and we, we've told some extraordinary stories, but none more astonishing than what you've just told us, and uh, thank you very much for coming on. Arati Prasad is a biologist and science writer, and her latest book is Silk, A History in Three Metamorphoses, and it's published here in Australia by uh, HarperCollins. Thanks, Arti. Thank you so much. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.